Thank you, gentlemen. Let's continue our worship now in God's Word and turning to God's Word. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus 35. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you, and you don't happen to have a copy of God's Word with you, you will find one right in front of you. Just look in the rack in front of you. Please help yourself to that and follow with us the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus. And of course, this morning, we return to our study in this book, and we have squarely now the final few chapters in view. It's been a blessed journey, has it not, in this second book of God's revelation to us. I pray you've been enjoying it as much as I have. As the book opened, we witnessed God's miraculous preservation of his people. Remember that? From the remnant of Israel, the 70 brought to Egypt providentially through Joseph, to the 600,000 families brought out of Egypt powerfully by God through Moses. That was in the context of deliverance. Yahweh's ongoing revelation given in the context of deliverance unfolded, unfolded from the name Yahweh, the great I Am, remember, to Moses in the bush, Exodus 3, to his might, Yahweh's might, to Pharaoh by way of plagues. Remember the ten plagues before Pharaoh in Egypt. Through all of that, God drew Israel close to him on Sinai. He affirmed the covenant. He revealed his law. The ten words, remember that study, the commandments, the ten of them, revealing God's character and standard. Then the case laws, you remember those, applied specifically to Israel in that time and place, taking the law, the principle, and applying it in that time. Very instructive for us. The law that simply stated said, Israel, this is how you serve me as my people. That was it in simple statement. Live according to my law. Be separate from the nations. Be my holy nation. Be a sanctified people, which means, remember, set apart from all other peoples and fully devoted unto me. And lawful living, holy living, listen, was not just a means of evangelism in ancient Israel. No, it was more than that. Lawful living, holy living was a necessary way of daily living. Why? Because God's presence would dwell among them. Thus they must be holy. By way, of course, then, the tent, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, that physical location in ancient Israel, in the wilderness, the dwelling place of God with His people. Again, that sanctuary, tent of meeting, whose instructions we covered We covered, remember the instructions for them, the blueprints in chapters 25 to 31. And while those exact blueprints were being given to Moses on Sinai, you remember this, the Israelites were at the foot of the mountain playing, committing a great sin with the golden calf. The idol that revealed the true heart of man, the potential of man, the proximity of sin. Israel, of course, deserved to perish. That was just due punishment for the calf. And that was, remember, indeed expressed by God, His wrath, the words of wrath. 
But Moses interceded, reminding Yahweh that these people were his people. Do you remember that? That's the intercessor saying, these people are your people. He reminded the Almighty of his covenant with them, the ancient promise, that his people would be distinct from all peoples. Yes, the truth of Israel, that they would be his people and he, Yahweh, would be their God, the intimacy. In the wake of that, the covenant was renewed by mercy, remember, on new tablets that Moses descended Sinai with in his hand and with something more. Do you remember this? His shining face from God's presence. And that's where we left off at the end of chapter 34. And now, as this book draws to an end, there's really one question that lingers in light of the instructions we've covered and all of the revelation, deliverance, and so on. But particularly in light of the chapters that we've just read, what of the promise of God's presence? What of the promise? The tabernacle, will it be fulfilled? We've seen a lot in Exodus. What of fulfillment? Remember, when we think about God's presence promised to his people, that is why the tabernacle instructions were given. Remember this in Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Remember this, the call, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting and for the ephod and for the breastpiece. There were the materials and then we had the construction blueprints, but then this, note it, Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9. And what? With all these materials, the contribution. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9, exactly, exactly as I show you, Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Of course, the pattern was then laid out, and the instructions precisely given. We've covered that, the exact measurements, the precision in materials, even the specific placements of those pieces. Remember that? Exactly where they're to be placed, not just constructed, but placed, all given clearly, finally by God. With covenant renewed, buoyed by God's mercy, the question lingers, would Israel finally execute? Well, Westmount, the chapters open in front of you begin to show us the answer. This entire final section, it'll run from 35 to the end of the book. This entire final section, listen, if not the deliverance, identity, and law for Israel and all that, If not even just that, all of it is summed up in verse 4 of chapter 35. Let's just read that one verse to set the tone for our study this morning. Verse 4, look at it with me. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Father, take this text, please. Open our eyes to it. Illumine our minds to it. Lord, may we receive it from you. 
God, not just understand, Lord, but go out and live it to your glory, we pray. Amen. So we begin with these final six chapters. We must make a comment on repetition. Maybe you've noticed that. The last few chapters, which seem to be a grand repetition of what we've covered. And in one surface skim, that may be the case. And in fact, we could say, depending on the content, it is. Much of the material in these final chapters, as we'll see, is a repeat from before, almost word for word. Now listen, we're very familiar with repeated material in the Bible, are we not? We're very familiar with that. Deuteronomy is a book that repeats much of what? The law, often word for word. Chronicles repeats kings. And of course, in the Gospels, you have repetition. So we're very familiar with that. What is unique, we would say here, is we have repetition within a book in such close proximity. Do you see that? Very close together, word for word in the same book. Yes, here we will see tabernacle information repeated many times, and in fact verbatim. So, why is this kind of repetition important to note off the top? So we begin this final section. Well, here in Exodus, as we descend here again to close the book, let's consider why. For one, I want you to consider chapters 25 and 31 for a moment. The commands, do you remember, as they were given there, think about direction. Those commands looked where? Forward, right? They looked forward. In fact, to be precise, throughout those instructions was this, you shall build, you shall make, and so on. Simply, the tabernacle blueprints were there in the future tense. It was future, looking forward. Here, chapters 36 to 40, the content may be the same, primarily the same, but the tense is not the same. We'll see this. Here you'll see, particularly from chapter 36 on, the construction is being recounted. The recount given is past tense. The craftsman made, he made, and so on. Thus, the repetition in the very words, in the very verbs themselves... Reveal fulfillment, and that's just so important as we begin this section. Now saying that, you might say this. Okay, I get that. They fulfilled and they executed, but it could have been captured much more economically. I mean, five, six chapters? I mean, the really efficient ones among us might say, you could sum up chapters 36 and 40 in one verse and just say, and Israel did the work, they built it. Right? Why the need to repeat, often with such precise measurement and detail? Well, I'd submit this to you. Parents might understand this one a bit more. Why does the parent go to the child and say, did you clean up your room? The child says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay, let me say that again. Did you clean? Did you go under your bed? Did you get the socks? Did you put them in the hamper? Yes, I did. I did. Okay. Did you open the closet? Did you sort and organize? Right? Why does the parent do that? Because the obedience, the fulfillment of the parental command is very specific. And it's pulled out, right, by the exactness. It's demonstrated and revealed through the walk through every little granular bit, the command. And we know that. In a much grander way, The repeat here is to confirm what? Just obedience proper? Just that, yes, they did it. 
No. For your edification, to see what, and I really want us to meditate and think on this this morning as we work through these final chapters. This is what true obedience looks like. Every single sock in one sense, every single detail. As the Lord said, as they did. Do you see that? Well, we will see it in these chapters. Precise obedience. Here, the repeat, we must love the word of God for its specificity. In the tense of the verbs, from future to past tense, the purpose in the words, in the verbs, is to show obedience. So good. Let's state it even clearer this morning as we begin this section. The repetition here highlights not only the importance of what is commanded, but also the precision with which it is obeyed. This is an account not just of what Yahweh instructed Israel to do. And so often we just run from there, right? Oh yes, I get it. I know what God has said and let me go and do it. But here we have an account down to the finest detail that they did it exactly the way God said. And this is so important. We, think about this, have been picking on Israel, have we not? It's easy for the New Testament Christian to pick on Israel. Needs mentioning because we've been doing that. 1 Corinthians 10 says we go to them for example, but listen, that example can be bad, and it often is with the Israelite, but it actually can be good, right? Examples are bad and good. And here, this is a shining example of obedience. Here, as the book draws to inclusion, to conclusion, at least in this episode, they are renewed. The calf, for now, is in the rearview mirror. And in the wake of that calf, there's actually much to look to. We don't just quickly move on past Exodus. We look at the richness in these final chapters. Thus, let's not miss the positive example of God's people, the needed example, and I would say very needed today. What is obedience? What is biblical obedience? Biblical obedience is this, precise, specific, every detail obedience. If it's true in one sense for the parent that says, I asked them to do this and this, and we get that, how much more true is it for our Heavenly Father? Right? Exponentially, spiritually more. And this is our study. Now, listen, this is just as God said. Repetition highlights it and it's helpful for us. Now, while we're on more positive examples in ancient Israel, we're brought to another. And that's the theme of these two chapters, 35 and 36. And it's this it's contribution. As this recount begins, we have contribution in view. You cannot miss this as you read these chapters. You can't miss this. As we reread earlier in chapter 25, remember, with the initial call, that initial call and instruction for the various tabernacle materials. Remember that? The prerequisite to any contribution, remember, we read it in 25 verse 2, was a heart move to do so. That's the grand prerequisite for what you're seeing here. Is the heart moved to do so? And moved hearts is just what we'll see this morning. Hearts moved, not just in emotion, an amorphous emotion, feeling warm and fuzzy. Hearts moved to action, to purpose, to contribute. That's what we'll see. 
And in these two chapters, Westmont will observe four features of contribution. Great help for us this morning. Four features of contribution. As mentioned, we've covered most of this content already. So we can move at times with a degree of haste, but we need to make comments on the unique pieces along the way, and that's what we'll do. So let's consider contribution. And the first feature we'll see, look at it with me, verse 1, the context of contribution. The context of contribution. Verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. We've encountered, of course, have we not, many times in Exodus, the Sabbath. In fact, we've had broad treatments, we've had specific treatments. The Sabbath comes up repeatedly in the book of Exodus, and we've covered that. The fourth commandment, remember, then restated and confirmed as a sign of the covenant in chapter 31. And by the way, the fact that it is a covenant sign, particularly of this covenant expression through Moses, informs why it appears here again. That's very helpful to keep in our mind as a preface to the tabernacle construction. It reminds Israel that there is, and here it is, it reminds Israel that there is a context. There is a precondition to what will take place, right? There is a context in which tabernacle construction must take place. And for Israel, it was their whole manner of life, an overall approach, a way of living, if you will, that's in view here. Again, it was their whole manner of walk, their rhythm, and their cadence as God's people that's in view here. It was their calling to live life very differently from day to day, from week to week. To look different. To be set apart. To have their identification in their God. And could there be a more clear way than through the week? There's no greater signal than the very ordering of their week associating them with Yahweh. Their week was not according to the pagan gods or the pagan cycles, like Egypt, like Canaan. No, their week was patterned after God's cycle and God's example. Six days of work as Yahweh, then one day of rest. As God did Israel, so you do too. Six days work, one day rest. As such, that was the context of the contribution that we will see here. It was imperative, imperative that that's the way construction would happen and more so contribution would happen. We would say it this way, provision for God's people given within a framework of God's plan. Provision for God's people, not just arbitrarily any way we want to contribute, Always within the parameters of God's plan. It's a great wrestle for many of us. God leads with the sign and the framework here. The sign of the covenant, the framework here. Overall, he says, do, build, construct this way. This manner. That's why he leads with Sabbath. In other words, there is no contribution, let alone building, unless it's done this way. And your work week looks like this. As you prepare, Israel, as you lay out your week, listen, remember my law. 
Don't throw the law out the window. Right? Even if it's a righteous comment to say, well, there's no rest for the Lord's work. No, you do it God's way. And as we've seen before, lest there be any debate on solemn rest. Look at verse 3. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. You could say much that explains that verse by way of preparation, and we looked at that in chapter 16 and so on. Preparing on the day before for the day ahead. We could say many things, but listen, that verse just simply says rest means rest. Don't kindle a fire in your home. No temptation to build and do that kind of work here. Israel, do not go about building and working unless you do it God's way. Six days of the week are for that. And not just then with a laid back day off attitude, but with a full day devoted to Yahweh. That seventh day, so vital for the quality of the six days. Is that not true, beloved? We find that in a different dispensation and age now, do we not? Is that not true for Sundays? The quality of your Monday to Saturday, no surprise, flows from what you did on Sunday. And the more you commit to the Lord on a Sunday, I would reckon with you, your Monday to Saturday is that much better. And we've looked at that. And that is the context to contribution. A week ordered by God, not by His people. A week ordered by God, not by the cycles of culture. With the Sabbath law restated, we now come to another restatement too. Looked at the context of contribution, now the components of contribution. Look at verse 4. Read this next section. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils. The bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. And the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze its pole and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the cord, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the cord, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the cord and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Again, in chapter 25, we looked at the original call for these materials, and now we see them being called. We see the original call. And we simply need to point out a couple of key realities of this contribution here as you consider those verses. Number one, the Lord's call for tabernacle components, as we just read, is supplied by, look at verse 5, generous hearts. The materials for the tabernacle were not gained by a tax, were they? But through a what? Generous heart. Generous heart. 
They didn't need a specific day set aside, a, a day of giving for Israel, right? They didn't need anything to stir up Israel, just a generous heart. That's the call. The generous heart is always, market beloved, always the manner of contribution for God's people. I'm reminded not only of the passage Luke read for us in 2 Corinthians 9, of cheerful givers, but also of the early church, Acts 2, 46. We're told that the first Christians, do you remember that text? From the very beginning, contributed to each other with what? Glad and generous hearts. That was from the very beginning. That is how Christians contribute to needs in Israel and in the church, generously. Two, we note the Lord's call for the human components. Did you see that? The skillful craftsmen. Verse 10. Remember the craftsmen with ability from where? Practice? DNA? No, with ability, as we covered in chapter 31, with craftsmanship from the Lord, those enabled by Yahweh for the work. Saying that we fast forward for a moment to the end of chapter 35, verse 30. You've heard this before, look at it. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with what? The Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. So this is everything given to him by God, but it continues. Look more, verse 34, and he's inspired him to teach. So he has this giftings and he's teaching others, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. And then in some Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Wonderful description of craftsmen, those gifted to work. And we see that here. Not only Bezalel, look at verse 34, and his apprentice Aholiab, verse one of chapter 36, but look at it, every skilled craftsman, back to verse 10 of 35, every skilled craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence for work. Remember, the Lord's contribution is not just ever dropped from the sky, right? I think often we can feel that way, or just insert it into a mailbox. That's not the way that it works with the Lord. Not just drop from the sky. The Lord in His divine prerogative and providence chooses to provide contribution through His people. Always vertically, yes. But the means is horizontal. He gifts, He enables, He equips, and He makes ready the saints. As we learned in class this morning, did we not? For the help of others, for the building up of others. That's the way God does it. Not these instantaneous, quick deliverances. Church, let's see this. The components for a contribution, whatever the work of the Lord is, always come from the head through the body. See that? They always come from the head through the body. Reminded of 1 Corinthians 12, here, which again we studied this morning. So that's the context and components of contribution. Now another, thirdly, the compulsion of contribution. 
the compulsion of contribution. Look at verse 20 with me. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. That last verse that we read there, verse 29, really captures the heart of this section. Quite literally, in fact. Look at it. In fact, as you look at that verse, it's an apt summary and reminder for us of the realities of contribution. Number one, look at it. It says, we are reminded that contribution, contribution in the Lord's economy is not limited by gender. It's not limited by office. It's not limited by status of any kind. It says, all the men and women the people of Israel, are in, in this contribution. There is no exclusive contributing group. There's no active bit of donors here that do the work. There's no 12% of the group that really carries that load. No, there's none of that. There's no, in fact, we would flip it the other way. There's no group excluded here. The whole congregation of Israel contributes. This is all. Look at it. Verse 20, all the congregation. Verse 22, both men and women. Verse 27, leaders. Verse 29, all, everyone contributes. That's one. Two, we're reminded if there's any limiter, if we will talk that way, if there's any limiter to contributing, it's not what you expect. If there is a limiter to contributing, what is it? A willing heart. That's the limiter, the willing heart. In other words, if you don't have a willing heart, you don't contribute. Again, verse 29 says, All the men and women, the people of Israel, look at it with me, whose heart moved them to bring anything to the work. Not all the men and women of Israel, they're like, well, I really need to do this thing. I need to appease my conscience and do this. No. Those with a heart moved for the work of the Lord. As noted, this heart condition is the connective tissue throughout this section. Go back to verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him said another way, and everyone whose spirit moved him said another way, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. And in case we missed that, verse 22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of what? A willing heart. Of course, verse 29, all the men and women who what? Whose heart moved them to bring. We just can't miss this in this account, right? Hearts moved. The willing moved heart. But we would say this, that's not just the limiter, it is. That's the prerequisite, it is. That's a precondition, it is. The willing heart, but it's more. It's the compulsion of contribution. 
We're going to see this more in a moment. It's the compulsion. The heart that says, I must. Thirdly, we're reminded that the compulsion was not just for work. Don't miss this. Not just to get busy, because I can't sit still kind of person. It's not just for work, but for the Lord's work. Do you see that? Verse 29. Men, women, all Israel moved with willing heart to bring anything for what? The work that the Lord had commanded. Not getting busy with their own agendas. Getting busy with what the Lord prescribes. Beloved, that is the compulsion. That the contribution is for the Lord's work. That's what moves the spirit and the heart. What does God have me do? And that's the compulsion that drove Israel here. We see it in the text. Beloved, it must still drive us today. Are you stirred to work by work for the Lord? Are you moved to contribute proper? Or are you moved to contribute for Him? What's your compulsion? I've been really impacted by the response to the Paul family last week. Multiple people approaching me, contacting me. And you know what they're stirred to? Work of the Lord. Work of the Lord. It's been an amazing picture this week to hear people respond. Well, I need to do this. I have talents and business. I want to give this to the Lord. Look, God uses gifted families and men like Carlos for sure. This is how hearts are getting stirred. How can I get to Zambia? What can I do here? There is so much work to be done. That's what we're talking about. Hearts stirred, not out of guilt, moved by the Spirit. You expressed, as I'm hearing the feedback, an attraction to the Lord's work to contribute to His doing. And that's edifying to the church. And listen, it's glorifying to God. And listen, ultimately, it's biblical, right? This is biblical contribution. Rightly motivated contribution. You know what? This should not surprise us when moved rightly. When our hearts are stirred by the Lord, this should be no surprise. When our hearts are rightly focused on the Lord, there is not only the absence of need, there is instead what? The presence of abundance. Let's look at it here in ancient Israel. Pick it up in verse 2, chapter 36. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. Everyone, here it is again, whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing. And they said to Moses, the, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work of the Lord he's commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Listen to this. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. What a picture, right? The contributions are so much grab it, they're told to what? Stop. Stop. The giving is just abundant. Stop. That's the picture. And so it is with hearts of compulsion stirred to contribute to the Lord's work. They keep bringing every morning and more. Verse 3, there's so much contribution. 
that there's a complaint. Now, these are the complaints that you love in ministry. There's just too much. You love it. There's four and five. And I love this additional picture, end of verse six. After Moses commands them to stop, the text says, look at this, the people had to be what? Restrained from giving. Do you know why? That's nothing violent there. That's a heart that says, I must. Don't hold me back. Don't let me stop giving. We know this, Westmount, don't we? As I wrote this week, I had to just stop at this point. I did. I, I actually stopped. And I was confronted very powerfully with the reality of God's people of old. I mean, this text hit me anew. And I was thinking this week of the often common reality today. And what is it? You know it. What is it today? There's not enough. Right? There's not enough. You get a knock on the door, an email in your inbox, a siren cry. There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough contribution. The thinning store shelves, the tight budgets, churches are fading, they're closing And I couldn't help but think of you, Westmount. I couldn't help myself, honestly. I could comment on the food tables at Westmount, the open homes, the warm arms, the full tables. I could remark on the amount of our members that contribute in service. It's astounding. How many are members of this church that contribute? Astounding. We could reflect on the past two years in the beginning. The elders remember this. The pay cuts that many of you faced. The job threats. The threat to contribution. We could look at that. So what do we do? We start a relief fund. And we realize very quickly there really aren't any needs. And then what happened? We blew it up. It just kept on coming in. And we had an abundance. Yet we're told there's need. A family moves earlier this year. A family moves. And you know what happens? We have to find spots and things to do for guys because we have so many guys show up. There's not enough work to be done. A family in need. We got tons of guys on the site. I could go on. Not once in these years, Westmount, have we lacked contribution. Is that not true? Not once, beloved. Why do I say that? I can't apply this text more than looking at you. Beloved, you are the illustration of this text. You are. The compulsion of contribution. One more feature of contribution to close this chapter. Let's consider the tent construction starting in verse 8. And we must note as we read this final section, the care, the detail given to recount this. All the craftsmen and all the craftsmen among the worksmen, verse 8, made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps 
So the tabernacle was a single hole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single hole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Then he made the upright frames of the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, 20 frames for the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames, and he overlaid the frames with gold, and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, with cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made him, he made it. And for it he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And its five pillars with their hooks, he overlaid their capitals, and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze." Indeed, we have seen all of that before, prescribed, now constructed. I was listening to a message this week outlining the widespread misuse of funds. It's quite a message. And this was not misuse in a corporation or a business deal. This message was outlining the gross misuse of funds inside the church, the body of Christ. And sadly, beloved, you know this. Many have scars of this. It is true. Contributions in local church contexts are given that never make it to their intended aim. And note how sad that is. The willing heart moved to give, but it never gets to what the heart's been moved to. That happens, sadly, all over, and it should break our heart. No accountability, nothing. Greedy, adulterous, deceptive false teachers and charlatans fatten themselves off the willing hearts of the sheep. How many contributions get devoured by the Benny Hens and Kenneth Copelands and on and on? I could give you a list. It's gross. Not here in ancient Israel. What is given for the Lord, look at it, is used for what? 
the Lord. Given by the Lord, used for the Lord. Let's take a moment now and consider this construction that we just read. Let's consider it. In recounting the building of the tabernacle, Moses starts with the tent itself. Did you see that? That's what we just read, the tent. As you read in this first construction portion, we note the following. Number one, the move from, we've said this before, but let's cap it now. The move from command to completion. This is the recount of what was made. So much sounds familiar, and it is. And hopefully you say, wow, that sounds like word for word, because it is. Remember, overall, this is outlining fulfillment. We covered that. Two, note the detail. Not one construction detail, and this is very important, is altered here. So it may be precise. Some would say, well, precise according to who? It turns out precise according to exactly what the Lord said. And you can check it. As God said, so it is. Brothers and sisters, this detail cannot be commented on too much. It can't be. Not with a people prone to wander, as we expressed this morning. Prone to return to their own way. It can't be said enough if that's true of us, and it is. Obedience here, again, we can't say this enough, is exact fulfillment of what God has said. In obedience, there's no perversion There's no protest. There's no, Lord, try it this way. And this this certain expression, the Lord will understand my partial obedience, which actually isn't obedience at all. There's none of that. Obedience here is exact fulfillment of what God said. Beloved, that's the point of the repeat. Nothing less. Fulfilled, made, built with precisely what has been given exactly has been ordered. That and only that is the construction of contribution biblically. Now, I was tempted to end that final point by saying it's a one-for-one deal. That would be nice and tidy, right? And in one sense, we feel that. There's this need here, and it's a one-to-one. Put it together, done. But in reality, it is never like that, is it? It's never like that. There's no such thing not trying to blow up mathematics here, but there's no such thing as a one-to-one. What do I mean by that? I want you to consider, for one, common contributions and consider the whole globe, if you will. There's a part needed, right? And then there's a part of a part given so often. That's why you're always being begged for contribution. One part is needed, But half is given, maybe a third is given. That's the economy out there. I mean, with our contribution, it's more like that. Whole needed part given. Math doesn't add up with our contributions. And I mean, as we've said a few times this morning, both outside and inside the church. If we are the source of contribution, if man is trying getting around a table, trying to strategize, trying to come up with some clever thing. If we're trying to muster up contributions, listen to me, beloved, it's never enough, is it? Never. It doesn't matter what domain you're in. It's never, ever, ever enough. There's always a shortfall. There's always need. Why? Because we fundamentally, our anthropology tells us this, we cannot meet any need. We can't. I know that provokes But we can't meet needs. We just are not creatures able to meet needs. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
You just said there were abundant met needs here. Well, the text did say that. and did show us that there have been. But Israel didn't meet the needs, did they? Who met the needs? God did. Who sourced the Israelite to build the tabernacle? God did. In fact, you have to ask yourself the question, let's move away from materials. One wonders if they had no oxygen in their lungs and their heart couldn't beat. Forget the tools, materials. Forget Bezalel and Aholiab. If their limbs couldn't move properly, if they weren't created in such wonderful design, could they build anything? Right? Who, when we think about true contribution, beloved, we are, whether we fight against it or not, dependent beings. And that hurts the most independent of us. So the math never adds up with us. We can never meet needs. This is a crucial takeaway this morning. We've studied contribution, but it has only been and will only ever be from Israel to the church and on, the Lord's contribution, the Lord's contribution. We give nothing. Remember that God is not first given. We give time because He gave us time. We give our abilities because He enabled us. We give resources that He first gave us. We're really moving around pieces, right? We're moving the chess pieces around. That's all we're doing. We're stewarding God's materials, some are stewarding them according to the blueprints, others are not. But everybody, everybody is using borrowed goods. All of it, beloved, your stuff, your mind, your money, your ability, all that you have, precious saints, is His. And by the sovereign grace of God, He's given it to you. And you're all unique, we talked about that this morning, right? Are downstairs. You're all unique, but it's all been given by God. We conclude our morning with a look at the evidence of that. Because this is hard for many. Hard for many. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, except your personal hard-earned stuff. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. All of it. While we consider the Old Testament, consider with me the mighty saints of old like King David, staring at a pile of abundant, overflowing, contributed treasure in First Chronicles 29, with his son in wings and waiting beside him, handing over the kingdom to Solomon. What a scene. All the resources for the house of the Lord, the abundant treasure, he's staring at it. You can imagine the peanut gallery at the side. You know what? That's what David did. That's a man out. You know what? We need more Davids. That's what we need. More Davids that can muster up resources. Go out and get me a David. And what does David say? Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That is why he was a man after God's own heart. 
right perspective. He acknowledged that all the people contributed was really the Lord's contribution. Do you see that? That's his prayer. It all comes from you. Lest no man boast. And thus, as we continue in verse 14, he then says this, and let's not miss this. But who am I? What is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. He points to the will of man. Do you see that? The very will of man to do anything good. David prays and says that actually comes from God. And so it does with a sovereign God. And years later, Westmount, we ask the same, who are we saints? Who are we, church, that we should offer anything willingly, that we should contribute in abundance? Who are we? Well, we know the answer now. Years later, more fully, church, don't we? Who are we, saints? Who are we? We are God's own, the body of Christ, chosen in Christ. Who are we? We're Christ's. We're in Him. Before the foundation of the world, we are Christ's. We are He who is the ultimate contribution. We are His. The Lord's contribution to us, the Son. And now we are in Him. And for the Christian, the Christ follower, they recognize their life and stuff is not their own. Are you impacted like I am with saints that get it? Say, nothing is my own. Nothing is my own. All that I have is the Lord's. And thus, what do they say? I must give all back to Him. I don't own it. Christ gave His life and gave all. So too we must logically, obediently, spirit-filledly give all back to Him. Yes, through Jesus Christ. God created all things and contributes, the contributor to all that is good. All contributions are held in His hand. That's the picture. It's all in His hand. Nothing claimed as our own. He made it all. He sustains all. He'll redeem his own. Glorify his own in his hand. That's the Lord's contribution. And by the way, that's what we talk about when we say the math doesn't add up, right? In Christ, you'd say, all my needs are met in Christ, but beloved, isn't it more? We didn't plan this, David, did we? (laughs) Right? We didn't at all. He didn't just die for your sins. He gave you eternal life. The math doesn't add up, does it? One part needed, infinity given. One part needed, and you get eternity. Praise God. Praise God. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your ultimate contribution of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't deserve him, but we receive him. Lord, we simply just step back, behold you for your majesty and goodness. You are the sovereign Lord over all your creation. Oh God, may we respond rightly, we pray. Amen.